Once upon a time. Once upon a time is a beginning that tells us that the following story is one that didn't really happen. Some stories are made up to entertain and excite. Some are made up to bring to us a, a message to make a point or two. Some use symbolism and the storytelling to illustrate great truths. Wonderful example of that is the outstanding book, The Pilgrim's Progress by, by John Bunyan. The various characters and events illustrate truths about the gospel and living the Christian life. And similarly, in Ezekiel chapter 16, there's a telling of a story, not something that took place, but an allegory, a story with symbolic meaning to make its point. Ezekiel and many of his fellow Jews had been forcibly removed from the city of David, from Jerusalem, from the, the temple where their faith was focused. And in chapter 8, Ezekiel was given a vision to make clear that the exile was not because God was caught off guard, not because the Babylonians managed to overcome God, but the exile had happened as God's judgment on his people for their faithlessness. However, the story of God and his people didn't end with the exile. But to see really how that story was to unfold and continue, it's necessary to first take a look back. And that's what the word of the Lord was doing in Ezekiel chapter 16. This is why the word of the Lord came and gave Ezekiel this story. Now, there are lots of stories in the history of the world about the tables being turned, about the poor and destitute becoming uh, rich, about the, the lost cause becoming the hero, and so on. And in this one, a girl is born of, to parents of mixed ethnic background. The child is not wanted or loved. Instead of the usual cleansing and care normally given to the newborn, this child was simply left to die. And still stained with the blood of her birth, her cord uncut, she is abandoned in the countryside where she's unlikely to be found. You know, if a grandparent had a photo of her at this point and showed it to you, you wouldn't be saying, oh, she's cute, oh, she's gorgeous. You'd be saying, how awful. And in that state, a passerby sees the child and moved by love, he commands her to live. Later, he passes again, sees that the child has grown, and again shows her love, gives her a place of belonging, gives her clothes and riches, and, and brings out her beauty for the world to see. So the despised newborn, verse 3, is Jerusalem, and the passerby is the Lord, verse 6. And the story emphasizes here the great truth of the gospel that God loves the unlovely. It's a story to emphasize that there's nothing special about those on whom God sets his love. God did not choose the people of Israel because they were better than others. The mixed parentage referenced your um, <clears throat> father an Amorite and your mother a Hittite. That was to underline there was nothing particularly special. There was nothing, no royal blood here or anything like that. And in fact, there was nothing about this child that made her desirable. Nothing she could do or give Simply, the passerby chose to love. Sometimes people go into relationships for what they can get out of it. You know, um, this person, if I get to know them, they'll be introduced me to so-and-so who I'd like to be with. Or I go into this relationship, maybe have a round of golf with this guy because I want to sell him, you know, several things. 
Maybe if I can become a friend of so-and-so, I'll get respected and invited to all the, the best events and so on. We do not, we should not respect these motives. Using other people to get what we are after is not good. Pretending that we are a friend when really we're after something is not something that we admire. And then other times we maybe strike up friendships to, that are mutually suitable or beneficial. Um, folks begin to car share on their way to work. Um, a friend that you can go to your favorite theater with or your sporting activities with. Friend because your kids are playing together and you'll be able to do some mutual babysitting and so on. And we don't necessarily calculate who gets the better of the deal. It's something that everyone benefits from. And there's nothing wrong with that. Good. But here in this story, the passerby who picks up the child doesn't do so because there's any advantage in it for him. It doesn't even do so because it's for mutual benefit. He, he does it because he's choosing to love the unlovely. There is no waiting for any improvement. There's no instructions for the child to clean herself up first. And in fact, she's unable to do that. Now, this is what the gospel writers mean by grace. The undeserved favor given to the undeserving. The no strings attached, no price sought care and love given to another. God blessing where he's not under any obligation to do so. And if we reflect on that, that, that in fact is a much more secure basis for a relationship. If someone becomes my friend for what I might be able to give or contribute to the friendship, what happens after I've given or contributed it? If it's a relationship where we're each playing our part, what if I fail to keep up what my friend understands to be my side of the deal? If someone chooses to love on the basis of another person's appearance, their attractiveness to you, what happens when they age, fatten, go bald, or whatever? If someone courts another person because they're wealthy, what if the money runs out, and so on and so on? But when the basis of the relationship is grace then that can never be taken away. Someone loves because they're committed to loving. Someone loves because they choose to love. Someone loves even when it's no particular advantage to them. This is the story of these first verses of Ezekiel 16. If that's the good news, the bad news, verses 15 and following that we didn't read all of, all of, um, the bad news is that grace can be rejected. And just as we are familiar with many rags to riches stories, we also know tales where relationships spoil. Someone marries a wealthy public figure and begins to experience and enjoy the bright lights, the glitz and the glamour, and after a while wants more, meets more interesting people, seeks more and different adventures, and then goes behind the spouse's back, cheats and wastes the kindness and generosity spent on them, and so on. And so in that second section of chapter 16, the eye of what God has done in the first 14 verses becomes you in verses 15 and following detailing Israel's unfaithfulness. The word prostitute occurs 21 times in the chapter. That's what's happened. 
that God has, God has picked up his people. He has rescued them. He has nurtured them. And after they've got a bit older, they've bombed off around the corner, right, left, and center to be with others. The Lord's kindness is wasted. His reputation is trashed. His love is spurned. His grace exploited. And so, thirdly, there is judgment. Firstly, it's unconditional love and grace from God. Secondly, that grace is rejected and wasted. Thirdly, the judgment. And the words of judgment in Ezekiel 16 are not the ranting, vengeful threats of an angry God. They're not a, how dare you do that to me, deity speaking. Rather, it is the pained expression of the jilted lover who still loves, but who is hurting. The rage that characterizes verses 15 to 52 is a rage that is rooted in love. Sin and judgment are not primarily about rules being broken, although that's part of it. It's something worse that's going on. Suppose, for example, someone is caught um, doing 40 miles an hour in a built-up area that should only be a speed limit 30. And they're caught and they're punished, even if no particular harm was done. The road was quiet, the conditions were good. But nevertheless, they've broken the law, they are stopped, they get fined, and we say, well, fair enough. But we think worse, we feel worse. When the offense is, well, there's a man who... In February, he certainly sent his wife a Valentine card. But he did so even though at the time he was having sex with her sister. And he was making moves at the time on her best friend. Now, no law has been broken. But isn't that kind of behavior worse than the guy getting the speeding ticket? Isn't it the, the conscious, deliberate work to do something that you shouldn't? Isn't it the planning and the scheming and the thoughtlessness and everything else that makes that just so much more horrible? The betrayal, the deceit, the undermining scream out to us. And so the, God should not be seen like the police standing in the roadside with his speed gun and then handing out penalties to anyone who's caught. Rather, he is the one who has so sacrificially, generously, committedly invested himself in a loving relationship with his people, verses 1 to 14. And look what he's got in return. Now, when that happens, when that kind of goodness is, is just thrown back in someone's face, could anyone who is really loving say, too bad? You know, you win some, you lose some. No. If that person is loving, they, they're hurt. And the heart is painful. Now, in one sense, the judgment falls with the withdrawal of God's blessing chapters 8 to 11, the theme that we're looking at last week. But again, it's not God going off in a huffy fit saying, this hurts too much. It's God saying, this is more than I can bear. And so the judgment has to be seen in that context. It's the pain of love being flouted. 
But even though that's the case, and even though the exile is happening, and even though the destruction of Jerusalem is just around the corner, the chapter finishes with promises that God's frustrated love will not always be frustrated, but will become unfrustrated. Punishment and hard times are going to come. So verse 59, I will deal with you as deserve. You deserve because you've despised my oath. But verse 60, yet I will remember. The punishment, the hard times are not the final word. The passerby taking and nurturing the discarded child was something that came out of the blue that could not have been anticipated, that did not have any human cause, that did not come from any worthiness in the child. And similarly, the restoration that's spoken of in these final verses of the chapter isn't because Israel and the others suddenly came to their senses and put God first. Again, it is God who moved first. It is God who still loves, and He hasn't stopped loving. And his final word is not going to be condemnation, but salvation for his people. Now, that didn't mean, as I said, that the exile wasn't going to happen. It didn't mean that the destruction of the temple would not take place. It didn't mean that the, the monarchy would, be, would survive in, in Israel and Judah. It didn't mean that the exile would be over in five minutes. But it did mean that the Lord's ultimate purposes for Israel and the nations would be fulfilled. The Lord had plans beyond that present crisis, plans that spoke of a restoration as unexpected as it was undeserved. Because God will remember His promises, verse 60. He will remember His purposes even if we forget. Surprisingly, the, or it would be for the people of Israel and Judah, Surprisingly, the restoration was going to be shared with Samaria and Sodom. And in fact, in verse 53 and then again in verse 55, the, the promises of Sodom and Samaria being restored first. I will restore the fortunes of Sodom and her daughters and of Samaria and her daughters. Oh, and your fortunes along with them. And then verse 55, and your sister Sodom with her daughters and Samaria with her daughters will return to what they were before. Oh yeah, and by the way, you and your daughters will return to what you were before. It's almost as if Israel was a bit of a thrown on, as an afterthought there. Oh, that would really have bugged the Jews. You see, because when they had the temple, when they were in Jerusalem, and they, they were thinking they were God's special people. They were the bees and look at Look at what Solomon had given them. This was the city of David. This was the temple. And these smelly Samaritans and Sodomites wouldn't get near this. But you see, grace does not allow us to look down on others. Grace does not allow any place for self-congratulation. That was a message that Jesus had a hard time getting across to the religious folk of his day. They thought there should be, and that there, there was some kind of pecking order as to who God should be interested in. They were wrong. And getting that wrong end of the stick was not something confined to Ezekiel's time, not confined to Jesus' time. 
This series from Ezekiel is opposite for us today because it holds a mirror, an unwelcome and uncomfortable mirror up to today's church. We might think of judgment as something that falls on other people, on criminals, on atheists and the like. But Ezekiel's message is first and foremost a message to Jerusalem, to the church of his day. God had given her the opportunity to be the envy of the world. He had showered his grace on her, verses 1 to 14. But she turned her back. Now, do you suppose that God is any more pleased with the church in lands like ours, lands that have got a long Christian heritage? Are we the kind of people that God is likely to revive and bless? We're a church hopelessly compromised by the spirit of the age, a church that demands healing far more than it is prepared to endure suffering. A church that wants prosperity far more than it's ready, ready to face adversity. A church more interested in its cozy get-togethers than in going into all the world. A church more focused on the likes of us rather than welcoming the stranger and those left out. Ezekiel was being accused by the exiles that it was God who had betrayed the trust. They thought they were being humiliated and shamed because God had let them down. Just like many in our day and age say God's let the church down. God's not bothered with us. But, says Ezekiel time and again, you are the ones who failed, who betrayed the Lord, turning your backs, presuming on his goodness, thinking that he should be dancing to our tune. And if and when, verse 63, we get to the point of understanding, we'll be ashamed. Then when I make atonement for you all, for you, for all, sorry, <clears throat> then when I make atonement for you, for all you have done, you will remember and be ashamed. And never again open your mouth because of your humiliation, declares the sovereign Lord. when we're gripped by grace, when we realize this is grace, this is undeserved favor, then not only do we not have any grounds for looking down on others and judging others, we have nothing to say by way of self-congratulation. We have nothing to say except, I'm sorry this took me so long. I'm sorry I stayed so far, long in the far-off land. And of all the responses that I have heard and I still hear about the church's predicament today, shame and repentance is not one I hear. And yet, I think Ezekiel, I think the Scripture is saying to us that this is what God is looking for. Not because he wants to leave us, but rather it is that point at which we realize we have 
nothing to say for ourselves. It is that point that we realize that we should only be ashamed before the kind of love that God has for us. It is at that point that our healing begins. It is at that point that we can think about and talk about and look for restoration. Verses 1 to 14 are a great picture of how much God loves. And a God who loves like that doesn't forget that he loves. He will remember his promises, his covenant, verse 60. And will work with us, verse 63, until we remember as well. Let us pray. Lord, sometimes the reputation the church has for a holier-than-thou attitude, sometimes that reputation is something we've brought on ourselves. Sometimes that reputation for being concerned with rules before relationships, with duty before grace, is something that we've brought on ourselves. Lord, through your Spirit work in us and, and, and help us to deal with all self-righteousness. Help us to throw ourselves entirely on your grace and goodness. That, Lord, once more, the honor and glory of God might be seen in our world today. Amen.